Amen. Well, guys, we hope you brought a Bible this morning, and if you did, would you make your way to 1 John chapter 3. Sunday mornings, we are just journeying verse by verse through the book of 1 John. We are finishing up chapter 3 today. We want you to be there with us, or hoping you brought a Bible and you're opening that up. If you didn't, there are Bibles in front of you, and the chairs are in front of you there. Page number on the screen so you can get there rapidly, and we'd love for you to do that. If you want to use an electronic device and a Bible app that you have there, you are welcome to do that. But one way or another, we want you to have the Word of God in front of you. We want you to be able to see it, and we want God to speak to you through His Word this morning. And so, again, we're just inviting you to have that. That's true in here. That's true if you're joining us online or in the overflow. Grab a Bible so that this morning you're not just listening, but God would speak to you through the authority and the power of His Word. That is what we need. And so let's take a moment and ask God to do that. I want to lead in prayer. hope you would pray as well. Let's ask that God would speak to us. Got to think of just the power and the authority of your word. Your truth that is unchangeable. Your truth that you said would be to us light in a dark world. I'm just asking for that now. Would you find us here and open up our understanding that we might comprehend your truth? Where we're confused or where we don't understand things, let it just land so that we do. But God, at the same moment, would you very personally and very precisely speak to us? Would you give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to us, though we're all together, speaking to us individually, taking truth and making it where we hear what you say to us? God, do that now. By the power of of your work, we look to you, give us ears to hear. We ask that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Hey, I just draw your attention to that. We think of that well-known hymn, and I want to tell you it's a good one. It's one that I want to hold before you this morning. In fact, we'll end this morning singing it, just FYI. But it's what's going to be held to us in our text this morning, that God wants to invite you and I to understand this place of having assurance and a blessed assurance that he would long for us to see. I want you to see that, so grab your Bibles again. If you're there with us, let's read through the text that we're going to cover this morning. We'll back up one verse uh, to catch one from last week, just to tie it in there and see what it is. So join me in verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we would believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandment abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. By this we know. Blessed assurance, or as it says it in verse 19, Again, by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts. 
Give us this place of having an assurance. I want you to just hear that this morning and understand that's biblical. God longs, he says it in his word, that there is a place of having a confidence and a sureness of your salvation because he's speaking about it right here. I need to tell that to you because not everybody agrees. There are those who have theological opinions where they would say, hey, nobody actually knows. Nobody actually knows. Maybe you grew up in such a space. Some of you grew up within the, the Roman Catholic Church, and whether you knew it or not, that's fundamentally a part of it. In fact, in the Second Council of Trent, it said it this way, no one can know with certainty that he has obtained the grace of God. It says nobody knows. I mean, nobody knows for sure, and that's fundamentally a part of Roman Catholicism because it's constantly drawing you to make sure you're doing stuff both to earn and maintain your salvation. It goes fundamentally against their understanding, and so there are those who would say, well, no, nobody knows. But I just want you to see it. God says you can know. In fact, we already read it, but see it again, verse 19. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Then go down to verse 24, and it tells it to us this way in the middle of the verse, and by this we know that he abides in us. So I just need you to understand again that it's biblical, that God would say this to you. And not only is it biblical, it's one of the themes of 1 John. If you've been with us on this journey already, you're aware of this. John is not a book that kind of lays it out line by line where he gives it to us. In fact, it's kind of a circular reasoning. So we talk about things over and over and throughout the entire message of 1 John, it is about this place of having a confidence. We saw it back in chapter 2 where it said, now by this, we know that we know him. And then it goes on to say, by this, we know that we are in him. Told us earlier in chapter 3, we know that we have passed from death to life. It'll tell us again in chapter 4, by this, we know that we abide in him and that he is in us. So John is speaking to us about this. He's telling us about an assurance of salvation, and I just want to tell you that's a biblical understanding. It's something that the Bible's offering you. In fact, let me say it to you this way. This assurance of salvation is possible for you. It is possible for you. God wants you to have it, or he wouldn't say it. God wants you to have assurance, and he tells it to us in this word. So I'm just speaking to you right now. I'm saying if it's in his word, and if it's possible, then it's possible for you. That God would like you to know that he's going to give us something that would tell us there's ways that you can know. In fact, one of the other passages that speaks about this in 1 John is one that's in chapter 5, where he'll say it again where it says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's just letting us know, hey, this is why I've written this. This is the reason of 1 John, and I just want you to hear it personally, that you may know that you have eternal life. I just want you to hear that. I just want you to hear, it's like I want you to know this. I'm inviting you into a space that that would be there. So assurance of salvation, it's a biblical reality. It's a possible reality. But let me say it another way. And I know I'm not speaking to everybody, but I pretty much have a sense that as I was preparing this message that God had me speaking to somebody. And I want to just say it to you this way. You should want this. It's desirable. 
that the assurance of salvation is something you should want to have. Now, you might be thinking, well, of course, Jim, I want that. Well, see, here's the deal. For somebody right now, you're actually afraid of it. You're actually afraid of it because you're thinking, hey, if I have confidence, wouldn't that make me lazy? If I have confidence, wouldn't that undo the motivation to try to be good or try to go to church or try to read my Bible? I mean, if I had confidence, wouldn't that just get in the way of that? Now, hear me clearly. Fear is a real motivation. It's a real motivation, but it's a poor motivation. It's not the motivation that he has for you in Christ. Well, I ought to preface this and say it this way. If you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you should be afraid. God calls you to be afraid, to be afraid of judgment, to be afraid of hell, because that is where you land right now. And fear is a good thing for you to have. Like, you should be afraid. But if you know Jesus, that is no longer where he wants you to be. Fear is no longer meant to be the motivation of your life, your Christianity. In Christ, it's not fear, but it's love. That instead of being afraid, afraid of judgment or afraid of things coming, we, we now operate on an entirely different principle. It will tell us in chapter 4 this way, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. It says if you're afraid, you're afraid of torment. You're afraid of the possibility of facing judgment. And if that's where you are, you're not walking in love. You're not, the love of God is not that which is propelling your life in the way that God wants it to. He's wanting to rescue you from this because fear is no longer what is meant to motivate our Christianity. It's now that we love God and we love people and it's genuine, it's real, and it's a far better, lasting, real motivation. So I just want to tell you, you should want it. You should want that this morning. You should want it. Well, not only should you want it, he gives us a few reasons of what it would do. See, if you have this assurance of salvation, it gives you confidence. Notice in verse 21, he gives it to us this way. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. This is one of the amazing things that would happen is if you have this, it gives you a confidence first and foremost in your relationship with God. That there's a sense that you recognize being in his presence, belonging to him, being his child, that even your approach to him becomes one that is a confident approach. I like the way the book of Hebrews gives it to us. It says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. And I just want you to pause and think about it this way. This is what he wants in Christ, that God is God. He stands on his throne. His throne is a throne of grace. But in Christ, there's a space that we enter into that, not with fear and trepidation, not with like, okay, you know, lightning going to fall and the floor going to open up and eat me, you know. I mean, he's like, I want you to come boldly, confidently, freely. There's a space that you come, and I'm telling you, you can't do that unless you know you're in Christ. You can't enjoy that. And so he's saying, if you have this assurance, he says, then you will have this confidence before God. You'll have a confidence towards him. And I pause and just say, that is so big. I could literally spend the rest of the morning right there talking to you about how amazing this is, what that would do for you, the reality is there. Words fail in many ways, but I'm telling you, it's better than words can say. To have a confidence toward God, to have a confidence in your relationship with God, it's amazing. But it's more than that. Not only do you have a confidence in approaching God, keep going, just reading it again in verse 21, beloved, 
If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God and whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Pause there. Not only does assurance give us confidence before God, it gives us confidence in prayer. It gives us a confidence that we recognize who we are, and because of who we are in Christ, we have access to pray. We get to pray in Jesus' name. We get to come and pray in Him, but that's ours solidly in Christ. In fact, if you were reading a moment ago there in Hebrews, that's actually what the verse is about. It says, you know, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. How? Why? That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you know who you are and you know the access you have in Christ, it says you should come. You should come boldly, often. You should just be praying, seeking, finding help in His presence. It's an amazing space. Now, I need to say this. The struggle with doubting salvation is really common, almost universal. I just want to make sure that you don't think you're the only one. I mean, these questions that many wrestle through are very, very real. And sometimes it happens right here. I wonder if it's happened to you. Maybe even this week, you were getting ready to pray. You were thinking about praying, asking God for help. And right when you started to pray, it just began to kind of pile in. What right have I to pray? What, what right have I to talk to God about anything? Look at the way I, look at who I am. I mean, do I even have access? Do I, do I know him? I mean, who am I that I think that, the, that God should even hear me? And right at the moment you were getting ready to pray, you were undone. You were undone. Why? Because you didn't know. You, you, you didn't have a confidence of your salvation. And honestly, it does it this way so often. He's going to tell us, hey, if we know this, when we have those things which we ask, which is not a place that we get everything we're praying for, John's going to tell us that more later in 1 John. We're praying according to his will. But it's still a place of prayer. Prayer becomes powerful when you know you're in Christ. Let me add to it this. Not only is it this place where we have this assurance of God in prayer, it gives us confidence in his promises. That if you know you're his, then the promises are yours to claim. If you doubt you're his, then the promises are not yours. In fact, you find yourself struggling with it. You know, I think about some of the most amazing promises. One of the well-known ones is like Romans 8.28. It says, and we know that all things work together for good. It's a great promise, right? We love that. Like, everything is working together for good. But there's a problem. It's not actually for everybody. He says, everything is working together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. In other words, right now, please hear me. Everything is not working for good for everybody. If you don't know Jesus, it is not so in your life. It doesn't work that way. If you know Jesus and you're honestly His, whether you see it or not, God is amazing. He is working everything together for good. And it's one of those promises that you can kind of just bathe in at times. It's like, okay, I don't know why. I don't know what He's doing. I don't know where this is going, but it's good. But here's the problem. If you doubt you're His, then right there you're like, well, but what if it's not really mine? What if I'm not part of the cold? What if I'm not actually his? Well, then not everything's working for good, and then there's no hope at all. And you find yourself at the very moment that you're right on the cusp of just having hope, having it robbed right out from underneath you because you, you're just not confident in, in your salvation. And so he's telling us right now, if we would have this confidence, it would meet us. It would meet us in this relationship with God, in prayer, in his word, and it would carry us through life. I think about it this way. Some of you have started reading, you read with us in the daily Bible reading, and if so, then you have started the book of Job with us. And some of you are excited, and some of you are like, oh no. 
I know where this is going. I know what's about to happen. This is, this is going to be a tough book, and we're going to see somebody go through some hard spaces. That's true. But Job, even in the midst of his suffering, he had confidence. Uh, you know, not always confidence in what he was going through, but confidence in where he was going. In one of those amazing passages, he'll tell us in Job 19, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. After my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God. Job knew it. I mean, it, life was still hard. He still goes through some really hard spaces, but one of the things that still held him is he's like, okay, I know where this ends. I know where I'm going to stand. I know I'm going to be there. I, I have this, and Job shows us an incredible reality of that. I think about even someone like the Apostle Paul, who would tell us in Philippians 1, for me to live, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's just an amazing problem. He says, here's the thing. If I live, I get to live for Jesus. If I die, I win. You know, it's, it's gain for me. I get to go and be in Jesus' presence. Here's the deal I want you to understand. The heartbeat behind that is an assurance of your salvation. If you don't know that, if you don't know that, you're like, well, I don't know. Hope my life is going to work out. And then when I die and I stand there at St. Peter with St. Peter at the gate, which you're never going to stand at St. Peter at the gate. But, uh, you know, I mean, it's just one of those weird spaces. It's like, what, so you're kind of hoping, like, maybe it's all going to work out, and then you just, like, I don't know, I, when I die, maybe. There's no hope, that, that Paul says, I know, I know, I know my life is one of the two. It's either living for Christ or being in his presence, that's it, and it's an amazing place, but behind the heartbeat of all of that is having this incredible assuredness of salvation that God is offering to us. So, if we can have it, and we can, if it's biblical, and it is, how can you and I have an assurance of salvation? That's the point of the book of 1 John. It's one of the main themes of the point of the book of 1 John. If you've been journeying with us in this, you've already been aware of it, where he's going to give us things where he says, here's how you can know. Where he'll say over and over, by this, we know. This is one of the things that gives us confidence of our salvation. Now, in the book of 1 John, he probably gives us at least seven, seven reasons, seven things that are proofs of our salvation. Now, if you've been journeying with us, we've already worked our way through some of them. In fact, through the first five. And I want to tell you that because I'm going to quickly go over them with you and then reference the final two because he actually mentions all seven here in this text. But again, it's been this journey, so if some of this is like, well, Jim, I need to know more about that. Well, we've covered them. Go back and get the other ones. We did whole messages on some of these, and we still have two more to come, and we'll dive deeper into them. Nevertheless, it is helpful just to kind of, just kind of catalog it and say, okay, so what are the things that can give us confidence of salvation? Well, this is what God tells us in 1 John. The first one is that you would keep the Word of God, that the Word of God would be powerful in your life. Notice down there in verse 22. In our text, it says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, notice, because we keep his commandments. Pause there. Yeah, we keep his commandments. And that's one of the things that gives us confidence. In fact, flip back over to chapter 2, where he tells us the same thing in verse 3 of that chapter. It says, Now, by this, we know that we know him, if... We keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this, we know that we are in him. This is one of the dynamics uh, uh, in the life of a Christian is the place that the word of God takes. It's not just a learned behavior. It's a powerful behavior that the Spirit of God lives inside us. So Paul would talk about it in 1 Corinthians that it's now open to us that the Word of God, it's now something that we both esteem and seek to follow. It's fundamentally true of every Christian. It's a change that's taking place in our lives. And just your belief in the Bible, your love for the Bible, your desire to know the Bible, not that any of us know it perfectly, it's one of those places that gives us confidence. Because there is this hunger for the Word of God that is one of the marks of salvation. Add to that, though, it's not just a hunger for the Word, it's an abiding in Christ. You're there in chapter 2 still, so you might just read it again in verse 5. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought to himself also walk just as he walked. It's not just about, you know, like I believe the Bible, but it's connecting to Christ. It's a believing on, trusting in, leaning in Jesus. Our text will say the same. And so you might just notice it there at the end in verse 24. It says, now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. So this abiding relationship with Jesus is one of the proofs, this place where we know we need Jesus, where we're leaning on Jesus, where we're seeking Jesus, that abiding, seeking to abide relationship is one of the marks of a believer. Now, that works its way into one of the realities that it will begin to change the way we live, that it'll work itself into a practicing of righteousness. Now, we spent a whole week on this, but let's go back and see it in the text Join me there in chapter 3, verse 7, where he gives it to us this way. It says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Verse 10, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, or made clear, or made apparent. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Then down in verse 22 in our text this morning. And we have whatever we ask, we, we, whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do those things which are pleasing in his sight. Practicing righteousness becomes one of those places that gives us confidence. Now, right off the bat, let me be clear. If you're not clear on what we just said, you're not going to feel helped. In fact, it might even trouble you. So let me try to quickly unpack it again and then invite you back to that whole study if you have questions. There are no perfect Christians. You just need to know that when he says practicing righteousness, he's not saying, okay, if you're perfect, you'll be confident. You'll be like, okay, I'm done. Like, it's just, I'm not. There are no perfect Christians. There are only struggling Christians. That we have a battle against the flesh. We have a battle against Satan. We have a battle in this world. That reality is true for all of us. So it's not a perfect righteous. I like the way he uses the word. It's a practicing righteous. You know, it's kind of like we're pursuing righteousness. It's seeking to be that way in our life. One of the things that that would mark is that we are those who have a repenting lifestyle. Repentance is key. It's a part of the gospel. In fact, it was part of the very beginning. 
There in the book of Acts, when they begin to share the gospel, they say, hey, repent and be converted. The idea of repentance is that we admit that you know, sin is wrong and we're wanting to turn from it. So what's really true for a, a Christian who's practicing righteous, you are living a lifestyle of repentance. There's no space for a Christian who's living in clear, disobedient sin, and they're not sorry about it, that they can have confidence of their salvation. That's, that's not it at all. It's the Christian who's like, God, I'm sorry. I'm trying. Forgive me where I'm wrong. And continuing to pursue righteousness that gives us this confidence. It's the battle and seeking to overcome in the battle that is this practicing of righteous, righteousness that works in our life. And it has actual real growth in our life. For anybody who's really a person in Christ right now, you would say, kind of with the Apostle Paul, I haven't arrived. I'm not there yet. You know, I'm not, I haven't attained everything he has for me. But you would be able to say, he has brought me this far. I'm not, I'm not the person I used to be. He's changing me. It's a good change. And it's that process of changing you that gives us confidence. And so all of that together is a place where he's saying that place of God changing you is one of the things that gives us confidence. Now, that change isn't just indeed, though. It leads us into a space that one of the keys in the book of 1 John is that we love each other, that we love believers. Notice it again in verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Then in verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He'll refer to it again down there in verse 23 in our text this morning. And this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Yeah, one of the things that happens inside the life of a believer, the moment you get saved, you find yourself a part of God's family, and in ways that are hard to even define. You're connected. And you're like, I love people I don't even know. <laughs> it's kind of this weird thing. I mean, I just find myself connected, which is one of the marks. But it should work itself, it needs to work itself into actual deeds, which is where we were last week in verses 18 and 19, where we read it already, but read it again. My little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and truth. And by this, by what? By loving in deed and truth. Let us love in the deed and truth, and by this we shall know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Because we're actually connecting with God's people. Because we're actually a part of the body of Christ. Because we're actually connecting in ways that are both tangible and real. Being a part of church life, being a part of Christian life, gives us confidence. Well, those are the ones that we've already covered. So much of what I tried to just do was remind you of that. And so if you need more of that, we did studies on each and every one of those. But there's two more that I'll just quickly reference because they're referenced in our text, but we're going to see them in greater depth in the coming days in the book of 1 John. The number six is that we have the Spirit, as he's going to tell us there in verse 24. It says, Now he who keeps his commandment abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he's given to us. That the mark of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives is one of the marks of it. Every Christian has the Spirit of God living in them. Paul will tell us in Romans 8, 
You don't have the Spirit. You're not His. It, it's a true spiritual dynamic that is one of the marks of a believer. And then he lands at the seventh there in verse 23. It says, and this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. So interestingly enough, when you talk about assurance of salvation, for many people, they begin with the number seven. Now, let's just be clear. Believing on the name of Jesus, believing in Jesus, probably is the most important. It is, in many ways, the high water mark of assurance of salvation. It is what's definitely there, this place of it. And John's going to talk to us about this. He says, you've got to really believe, not just in some kind of Christ spirit kind of thing, not something in Christ consciousness kind of thing. You've got to believe that Jesus came physically, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave, stuff that we're going to talk about in these next weeks. That belief, that confession of Christ is one of the things that without that, there is no conference of salvation. But in that, there is. Well, more on that because that's yet to come furthermore in 1 John. But I just want you to pause and just say, okay, there's the list. There's probably a couple more if you wanted to look deeper. But this is the clear list in 1 John. Every time he tells us, by this you know. By this you know these are the things. So two things I want to make sure that you're noticing in this list, and some things we've already talked about, but just reminding you. And the first is this salvation and the assurance of salvation they are not necessarily the same thing hear me clearly assurance and salvation are not the same thing you can be saved and really be saved and not have an assurance of salvation it happens god doesn't want that he's going to invite us out of that but that does happen and sadly We'll see it before we're done this morning. There are some that think they're saved, and they're not really saved. There's some that have an assurance, but it's a false assurance without a lack of real salvation. So these two things can be different. Well, that's important because when we think about being saved, maybe you know. The only way to be saved is through Christ. It's not you that saves you. It's Christ who saves you. It, it's Him. I think about in that amazing passage in Ephesians 2, where it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So if you're saved, you didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. You didn't get, you know, your 100 gold stars that finally entered you into the kingdom. And there's no space that you did any of it. It's a gift. God gives it to us freely, he gives it to us in Christ. It is grace. It is not earned. There's no boasting in it. That is true. Salvation is by grace. It's a gift that you, if you don't have it today, you need to receive. But understand, it doesn't stop there. See, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, for by grace we're saved, and he tells us it's not of works. But then in verse 10, he tells us, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Maybe oversimplification, but let me say it this way. Assurance of salvation is found in verse 10. Assurance of salvation is found that Jesus begins changing you. He takes you on as a project. You become his workmanship, and he begins to lead you in good works. And, and one of the ways you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 happened is because Ephesians 10 is happening. 
It's the proof that salvation is not by works. Salvation works. Salvation changes lives. Salvation changes us. And it's the change that gives us confidence that the real salvation has already taken place. The, The works don't save us. They prove it. They prove what that is. And so when we think about this list, we're looking at those things that Jesus does inside of us that change us in a way that gives us confidence. With that, understand this. If you will take time to look at all seven in this list, you will discover very clearly that these are present realities, not past descriptions. This is all about a present thing, and this is really, really important that you track with me here because it's just not always the way our brain goes. So here's how it works. Some people, not you guys, this is like people in Clovis, okay? So I don't think there's anybody listening in Clovis, but we're just going to say that. Um, Sorry if you're in Clovis. Um, Here's how it works. For some people, when they think about assurance of salvation, they immediately go backwards. And they'll think, well, I think I'm saved because I remember when it happened. I was there when I, you know, went forward in the crusade or had this emotional experience or I remember... And and we have this propensity to look backwards for assurance, but God doesn't ever call us to look backwards. When he talks about assurance, he talks about, what do you see right now? What do you see right now? Everything in this list is about where you are today. Do you love the Bible? Are you holding to Christ? Do you see him changing you so that righteousness is becoming a part of your life? Do you love God's people? Are you connecting with God's people? Do you have the spirit? Do you believe in Jesus? Everything in this list is about where you are right now. And that is so very helpful to understand that a biblical assurance comes off of a present relationship. A biblical assurance comes off of a present where you are today with Jesus. And and so that both identifies the strength of assurance, but sometimes what is the problem of assurance. Again, we'll talk about that more in a moment, but it's enough just to cause you to see it, that he's telling us, here's how you can know, and and I just want you to see it. Again, I wish we had time to go through each one of them in great detail, but I'm telling you, he's offering them to you, that if you want assurance, a biblical assurance, then these are the things that God prescribes, that he says, if you do these things, you will have a confidence, you will have an assurance of your salvation. Ah, but Jim, that's the problem. What if we don't have confidence? What if our heart condemns us? Well, that's exactly what he talks about. Go back and see it with me. We jumped over it in verse 20. It says, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. All right. If our heart condemns us. Well, let's come at it this way maybe oversimplification, but there are three reasons. Three reasons that your heart might condemn you. There are three reasons where your heart might be setting off a warning signal and being like, ding, 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 I don't think this is you. (laughs) I I, I think you might not be the one that has a shirt. You might not be saved. There are three reasons that you might have that warning signal happening in your life. And the very first one is it might be true. I mean, it might be this morning that you are condemned. And I mean this in the most gracious, simple way. Please understand me. Some of you feel condemned, and indeed you are. You have no evidence of salvation. 
There's nothing in your life. You don't, you don't love God's people. You don't love his word. You don't, you don't you know, feel the presence of his spirit. You're not even really sure you believe in Jesus. You don't have any of those things. Hear me clearly. This is good for you to recognize right now. It is good for you to recognize now. And I'm wanting to say this lovingly, kindly, but as sincerely and powerfully as the Holy Spirit will help me to do so. Because false assurance saves nobody. False assurance doesn't rescue anybody. Jesus gives it to us this way. He says it in Matthew 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Okay, these are scary words. Some of the scariest words in the New Testament to me. He says there's going to be a day. Everybody dies. It's pointed out a man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. And Jesus says, okay, there's going to be some people that get there, and they're going to say the name. Jesus, Lord, I mean, is that the password to get in, right? You know, it's like, you know, Jesus is the password, Lord, Lord, and he's going to tell them. You know, you don't get to enter here. Only those who do the will of my Father. Many, he says, will say to me, Lord, Lord, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Make a quick comparison there. Practicing lawlessness compared to an our tax, which is practicing righteousness. He says, hey, you know what? You're going to depart from me. Now, here's the scary thing. It would seem to be that some of these thought they were going to go to heaven. It would seem from the text that there's going to be a group of people that believe this. Now, I just want to tell you, I just believe it because Jesus is speaking it. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I'm just going to be very clear. I wish he said it differently. I wish he had said, you know, there's going to be a couple people. There's going to be a couple that, that are there. Instead, he says there's going to be a lot of them. There's going to be many. There's going to be many people that get there and they're going to say, is Jesus the answer? I'm in. And then Jesus said, but we didn't ever have a relationship. And you never were changed. How did you think you were getting in? You know, I mean, what made you think that? Well, you know, I prayed a prayer and my pastor told me I was fine. And, you know, I kind of went through the, I mean, is that enough? And she's like, no, it's not enough. Now, here is my prayer. And I've shared it with you guys in times past. I have a prayer request that I pray and I'm praying it again right now. I don't doubt that this is going to happen. But I am simply asking that none of this will be on my account that there won't be anybody who comes to this church who gets there and hears these words from Jesus and then says to Jesus, but Pastor Jim told me I was fine. I, th I really thought it was okay. I just want to tell you as clear as I can, I want to press against that as strongly as I can and say, hey, if you don't see the, the, the outworkings and, and the workings of faith in your life, then hear me, don't be this person because there are people that think they're saved and they are not saved. And if that is you here this morning, I'm not trying to make fun of you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad in that sense. But I think I just want you to understand how much hope there would be if you would recognize where you really are. If there's been no change, if there's been no transformation, if there's nothing happening inside of you, it would be an amazing space for you to say, I need to get saved. I need to get saved. You know, I think about it. Jesus, you know, healed a blind man in chapter 9, and the blind man comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I believe, you know, kind of believes in him, and, he, and he's worshiping Jesus there. And then Jesus looks over this man and he makes this spiritual statement. He says, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. He says, I've come in here and I am the dividing line. There are those who are blind and they're going to see, and those who think they're going to see 
and they're blind. There are those who can say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, you know, and now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. If that's you, then you're on that side. Jesus says, that's what I do. I've come to rescue the blind. But then there are these others who don't think they're blind. And because they don't recognize their need for Jesus, they don't get saved. They don't get saved. The Pharisees hear this. They know exactly what he's saying, and they just kind of respond to it. And they say, are we blind also? You telling us that we're blind? And Jesus just answers them and says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see. Therefore, your sin remains. That's Jesus' way of saying, if the shoe fits, wear it. You know, kind of deal. Like, you know, if you say you see, which side of this are you on? If you say you don't have a need for me, it's pretty clear which side of this you're, you're finding on. You're saying I'm fine. Well, here's again what I'm saying. If you could recognize you're not fine, if you could recognize this morning that you are blind and you need to see, if you could see this and you are, your heart is condemning you, I just want to tell you this, grace, our God saves our God is a saving God, and it might be this morning that your heart is, you know, giving you warning signs, and it's a good thing that God would rescue you, and we're pleading with you today to be saved, to give your life to Jesus, to literally be born again, for old things to pass away and all things to become new. It's an incredible thing. Today, we just invite you to that. So, sometimes people feel condemned because they are condemned, that the Holy Spirit is in this world, as Jesus said, to convict this world of sin, of righteousness and judgment to come. And some of that's happening. It's like you just recognize, I'm, I'm wrong, I'm in trouble, and I'm going to be judged. And the Holy Spirit is trying to wake you up to get saved. And so if that is where you are, it's a good reason to be condemned. It's the first reason. The second reason that some people are condemned is because they're living poorly. Yeah, let's think this through for a moment. See, maybe you're here, maybe you really are a follower of Jesus, but the evidences that are given in 1 John, they're lacking in your life. You don't have assurance, and you shouldn't. You don't have assurance because the Bible's not offering it to you who are living poorly. I think about it this way in 2 Timothy. Paul, just thinking this reality through, says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. This is a great statement. I love this. So here's this. Here's what we know. Here's what we know. God is not confused. God is not up there in heaven going, I'm really confused. Which ones are actually saved? You know, just, I'm still trying to figure it out. You know, I'm looking at those ones at Calvary Roswell, and it's like, I don't know. No, he knows. He knows us. He knows everything about us. So the Lord knows those who are his. He's able to see it with perfection. There's not any doubt in his mind. He knows it. We can't make that judgment. We don't see what he sees then how do we see it? If you know Jesus, if you're going to name his name, start practicing righteousness. Depart from iniquity. Turn to Christ. Turn away from the things of this world. Live it out in such a way that you know it and we know it. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to do. It says, if that's where you are, this is what you need. And that's exactly what 1 John is offering us to. He's giving us this list of things that would give you confidence of salvation. And I'm just telling you, if these things aren't yours, it's good to know it and say, well, there's no, there's no confidence where I am. If you don't believe the Bible, hold to the Bible, if you're not tr trusting and leaning on Jesus, if there's not righteousness in your life, if you are comfortable in your sin 
and you're not sorry, and you're not repenting, if you're living in an unrepentant lifestyle of sin, there's no assurance of your salvation. Not saying you've not saved. You might be saved. I just can't tell it, and neither can you. So if you're, you know, living with your boyfriend, sleeping with your girlfriend, if you're living a drunken lifestyle, if you're walking in homosexuality or any of the weird things of our world that the Bible is really clear, you can't do those things and have the testimony of a believer, then you just can't. Now, again, it might, you might really be saved. We just can't know it, and neither do you, till you turn away, till God fixes, till you turn fully to him from those spaces. When you do that, you can have that a confidence. So to you, I'm just pleading with you, in the words of, of what Paul said in Timothy, depart from iniquity. Like, you want this. Do you want to have an assurance of salvation? You'll never have it living in disobedience. You'll never have it living distance from Christ. You'll never have it not reading the Bible. You'll never have it in those things. You need what he's offering to you. And you'll never have a real assurance unless this is you. So I'm calling you to it. I'm just calling you to it. I'm just calling you into that space. So there are two out of the three reasons that your heart might condemn you. Before we talk about the third, one other quick little FYI. Let's talk about both of these first two for a moment. The person who is condemned and the person who isn't, who's saved but living poorly. How can you tell the difference? How can you tell the difference between an unsaved person and a saved person who's living poorly? Can I give it to you in the most simple way? You can't. You can't. There's no way you can know. They might look exactly the same. You could have two people sitting in church this morning, and honestly, you're living the exact same life. You, you both have spent this week poorly. You, you've lived in sin. You've done what you shouldn't do. You've walked in, in things you, that you shouldn't have walked in. You've not been reading your Bible. You're not praying. You're not trusting in Jesus. And here's the deal. Right now this morning, you're, one is saved and one is lost, and we can't tell, and neither can you. There's no way to tell the difference. So what do you do with that? Well, hear me as clear as you can. We don't know. So when somebody's living that lifestyle, we treat them as an unbeliever. Now, maybe God knows. Maybe they're really his, but you don't know. And to them, we both pray for them and preach the gospel to them. Now, again, I, I want to recognize how hard this is. We've talked about this a couple times already in 1 John, so let me just quickly say it again. It happens. For many of us, we have somebody. It's somebody in our family. It's a child. It's a spouse. It's a parent. It's a brother, a sister. It's a friend. They used to. They used to go to church. They, they used to sing. They, they, they were up in the choir. They, they were so active in everything that's happening, and, and they just had such a good you know, kind of testimony of a believer, but today they don't. They're not walking. They don't come to church. They don't read their Bible. They're not trusting in Jesus. But here's what happens. For some of us, we still want to treat them like believers. And we want to do so because of the past, not the present. We, and we want to say, well, you know, I think they're fine. I think if they die, they're going to go to heaven. You know, I know they're living really bad right now, Pastor Jim, but you don't know that. You don't know that. Now, maybe it's true. God knows. And I'm fine with leaving that with him. But you don't know that. And if you don't know that, how would that change? Well, you'll pray for them. But you know what else you'll do? you'll share with them the gospel. The gospel is, Paul tells us, it is the power of God unto salvation. I personally believe that this is one of the satanic lies in our generation that is keeping people from sharing the gospel with some of the people that need it the most. Because we are like, well, they think they're saved. 
I don't need to tell them about Jesus. I don't need to tell them, you know, you need Jesus. You need to believe. You need to be rescued from your sin. Jesus would rescue you. Jesus would, would, would free you. And we fail to share the most powerful message in the universe with the people that need it because we think they're saved when we have no reason to think they're saved. Is that kind of clear enough? I hope. I mean, not trying to be just telling you, if you believe this, you'll say, okay, I can't do that because the only way we have confidence of salvation is because of the way somebody's living now. So there are three reasons that you might feel condemned. One is you really are condemned. Two, you're just living badly. But there is a third reason. And the third reason is what we're just going to simply call an oversensitive conscience. Sometimes, sometimes our conscience gets too hard on us. That just doesn't happen to everybody, but for many it does. And that's exactly what he begins to address there. Notice it again in verse 20. It says, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. God is greater. God knows. Can I say this in the most generous way? I know that for some of you, you just need to hear this. I mean, there are some that have a tender conscience. And just to ask the question, are you sure that you're saved? The moment I ask it, you're like, no, I'm not. You know, like, maybe I'm that person that you just were talking about. You know, maybe it's me. I don't know. And, and, and I just, I just want to tell you, we, 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 with great love and kindness, please understand this. Your salvation is not based on your emotional state. I mean, he's offering us a sureness of salvation, but if you're his, you're his. I like the way Spurgeon said it in response to this. He said, sometimes our heart condemns us, but in doing so, it gives a wrong verdict. And then we have to have the satisfaction of being able to take the case into the higher court, for God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. Sometimes our heart condemns us, and it's just wrong. Sometimes our our conscience condemns us, and it does so wrongly. We have to trust God, and he invites us into that. Martin Luther, in his own struggles, and he struggled with this sometimes, he said, sometimes the devil interprets the best things badly and bad things well, weakens good things and makes much of the things that are bad. From a little laughter, he can make eternal damnation. He said, Satan is busy in this whole process of condemnation. This is one of the things he does, and so he says, sometimes he messes us all up. I mean, we just laugh at something we shouldn't laugh at, and then pretty soon Satan's like, you're not saved. Look at you. you. You you call yourself a Christian. You are not a Christian. And we're like, yeah, you're right. You know, just, and, and we can so easily be moved. And I just want to tell you, he's speaking to that. But if I can say it in a different way, that's why 1 John was written. He's written to us so that we begin to base the reason that we have confidence, not on our emotional state, but on truth. Now, I recognize, as I quickly draw you back to the list of seven things, For somebody, it's still not going to help. You're still going to be like, I don't know. Maybe I don't do any of those things well. I'm sorry. not trying to be, you know, I I just know that you're there, and please know God knows you, and you're his, you're his, and nothing's going to change that. But as he gives us these things, please understand, none of these are talking about being perfect. None of these are describing a Christian who's doing everything right. All of them just describe a very real Christian life. So here's what we would do. If I could sit down with you, and you're like, Jim, I don't know. Am I saved? Am I not saved? Well, we could have a conversation. I could say, so do you believe in the Bible? Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God and it's true and, and what it tells us is right? And if you're like, well, yeah, that's confidence number one. Do you believe you need Jesus? That Jesus is the only way that you're saved and he's the only way that you can do life and that you need Jesus all the time? If you could say, yeah, that's abiding in Jesus. I mean, you're not doing it perfectly. None of us are doing it perfectly. But if you know you need him all the time, 
That's a good thing. Are you practicing righteousness? And again, I know somebody's like, no, that's my problem. Now, I'm not saying are you perfect. Are you repenting? Are you uncomfortable with your sin? So that every day you're like, God, I'm so sorry. Did you see me behave again? Did you see me get all mean again? Or I lost my time? Are you uncomfortable with your sin? So that you're repenting of your sin and you're dealing with it daily and you're watching him grow you? That's practicing righteousness. If you're fighting sin, that's a good mark. That's practicing righteousness. Are, are you doing so that you now find yourself that you actually love God's people in ways that you can't define? It's like, I don't even know them. I think I like them. It's weird. It's kind of a weird deal. I don't even know what happened there. It's like, well, that's a good mark. Are you actively involved with God's people? Like, do you go to church and you connect with people and you partner in life with them? You pray for them. You let them pray for you. That's a good mark. That's a good mark. That's one of the things that should give you confidence. Do you know something of the power of the Holy Spirit that he's really inside of you? More on that to come, but yeah, it's real. Do you believe in Jesus? That you know that he came and died on the cross and you've put your confidence in him. If you can say yes to these things, then you would say, well, I think I might be saved then. I mean, like those, I mean, like, like a moment ago, if I'm just gonna base my salvation on my emotional state, like I feel saved, I'm in trouble. But if I can look there and say, well, you know, not perfectly. I mean, I got room to grow, so do all, but I can look at the list and say, yeah, those things are me. If those things do mark my life, then I could have confidence. I could have confidence, not based on my emotional state, but on what God is offering to you. And I'm just telling you, he's giving this to you because he's recognizing the possibility that that could keep you back from entering into the space of having this blessed assurance. And so hear it again. He's just laying it out to us. He's given it to us, this incredible place where we could have assurance, where we could know that we know by these seven things that are there and overcome even a heart that would condemn us. He's offering that to us. Do you have this? Do you have a confidence of salvation? If you don't, can I tell you, this is serious. You should do whatever it takes to get that. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, if any man is not sure that he is in Christ, it ought not be easy one moment until he's sure. Like, if you don't know, you should not be, it should not, you not should be comfortable. You should be like, I got to know. I mean, I have to know. Dear friend, he goes on and says, without the fullest confidence as to your safe condition, you have no right to be at ease. And I pray you may never be so. This is a matter too important to be left undecided. This is a matter that's too important to think, you know, I hope so. I hope I'm going to be right with Jesus when I get it. Really? Like forever, heaven and hell, this is too serious. Like you should not be okay with not knowing. You should do whatever it takes to get to the space that you are confident in your salvation. I think about it this way. Paul would call us to this in 2 Corinthians 13. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. He says, you should really test. Like, okay, am I real? Do I have a real faith? He says, unless you're not. If you're not, then get saved. But he says, I want you to know this. I, I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified, that there ought to be a space both by recognizing him, but even you. And I'll just say it this way. My hope and confidence is that for many of you, you'd come to this space and, and recognize that you would have this. But I hold it out to you again. Let me say it in entirely different words. Peter addresses the same thing in 2 Peter at the first part of his letter. 
And he talks about this amazing salvation we have, this incredible access that we have in Christ. And he says, but also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Hey, without spending more time on it, that's Peter's list of the seven. I mean, we could pretty much say, you know, the list that John gives us in 1 John about how you know that you know, that's the same thing that's here, different words. Like, grow. Like, grow in your faith. Like, grow in Christ. Grow in love. Grow in the things that God would have for you. And then he just says it this way. If you do that, if you grow, if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like, you won't waste your life. Your life will be good. It'll make a difference. Your life will be, because you're growing in the things of God, it's a great place to live. If you don't grow in these things, if you lack these things, then you're short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. It's just a warning. So there's Christians that get there. Do you forget what he did? Do you remember what he rescued you from? How could you just live without pursuing everything God has for you? You've forgotten what he's done. Don't let that be there. But... Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Like you should do everything you can to be sure of your salvation. Like you should do whatever it takes to say, I want to know that I know that I have this. You should do whatever it takes because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wow. See, here's what's going to happen. If you live well, when you die it's going to be this celebration of entering into God's presence. Now, I think that's true for the person who enters into God's presence, but can I tell you, I think it's also practically true for those who are left behind. Can I tell it to you this way? One of the privileges I get as a pastor is I get to walk with people in funerals. I get to go through death. I get to watch people die and I want to tell you it's a privilege and it's an honor to be able to do so in the midst of that, but I can tell you it's different. I could break up funerals into three categories. There's three kinds of funerals I do. The first one is for the person that we don't know. The first person is they, they never really lived the life of a believer. They didn't really go to church. They didn't believe in the Bible. They didn't you know, trust in all those things. Now, I never would do a funeral and tell people, hey, they're in hell. I, I understand the, the thief on the cross. I understand at the last moment they might be saved. I get that. But I also can tell you there's no confidence. So when that's the funeral I do, I, I, I can't share it. I can't share the hope. I'll never say, hey, we know where that person is. I'll speak to the people living. I'll speak the gospel to them. But it's a, it's a hard way to die when you're like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's very, very possible that they're not. You know, it's very, very possible they're facing judgment right now. That's a hard funeral to do. That's the first. The second is the I hope so funeral. You know what I mean by this, right? It's the person that they kind of were a Christian and kind of weren't. I mean, they came to church sometimes, and they did some things, but then they really weren't that much, and so you get there at the funeral, and you're like, I hope they're okay. You know, it's like, I mean, I, I know they believed. I know they went to church sometimes. They weren't totally serious about Jesus, but you know, I can do those funerals, and, and I can speak hope into that, especially through the lives that are there, but in the back of my mind, I'm just going to be honest, I'll do those funerals and think, I hope so. I hope they really did know Jesus, because if not, this is not a good moment. But can I tell you my favorite funerals to do? My favorite funerals are to do for somebody that loved Jesus well and lived for him well. And they 
followed Jesus and they were in his word and they were serving God's people and they were loving God's people and they were believing in Jesus. When you can do a funeral for somebody who is really living, it is a celebration. I mean, you get to the funeral like, yes, they're in heaven. I mean, like I know, I'm confident that the moment they, pass, they left from this life, they're in Jesus's presence. And I would say they have this abundant entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, both on that side, but this. And if I can put it to you this way, I'd like you to end that way. I, I don't want to get to do your funeral and be there and go, well, I hope so. You know, you know kind of maybe, you know, we'll, we'll know when we get to heaven. You know, I mean, I, I would so much rather say, oh, man, did you see these people? They loved his word. They loved his people. They zealously, you know, walked with him. They were, you just watched the way they lived their life. And man, it was just, I, I have confidence in them. That's how I want to end. That's how I want you to end. And that's what real assurance looks like. So it's right there that we'll close this morning. You can close your Bibles, your notebooks, and, and things that you have open. And we think about this assurance, and maybe in the simplest way, I just want to ask you which category you're in right now. Are you in that category? It's like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> like, probably not. Oh, get saved. Are you in that middle place where it's like, eh, maybe? Why would you do that? Why would you live so poorly that you don't know and we don't know? Or are you in that place that you know and that we know because of you, well done. That's the life we want to live. We want to have this assurance of our salvation. And I'm just telling you, it's biblical. God's offering it to you. And he's offering it to you in a way that would be life-giving. It would give you confidence before God, confidence in prayer, confidence in his word, because you would know that you know that you're his. That's what he has for you. That's what he wants for you. So would you take a moment, talk to him about that? I'll do the same. Then we'll close together in prayer and worship in just a moment. God, I so thank you for an assurance of salvation that you are holding it out to us right now, a place where we could know that we know. I begin by praying for those who don't know you, 
that there are those who right now, their conscience would have to testify that these things are not true of them. But I'm praying for that. I'm praying even that they would be those who, Jesus, in the words that you spoke to the blind man, would recognize they're blind, would recognize they need you, and recognize they need to be saved. God, draw these who don't know you to you right now. I pray for that. God, then I pray for those who are yours, and yet they're living poorly right now. And in the way they're living, they cannot have a confidence of their salvation. You would not give it to them, even though you know they're yours. God, rescue them out of their poor choices, out of the way they're living their life. Help them to dive in. Dive into you. Dive into your word. Dive into trusting in you, leaning on you, turning away from sin, departing from iniquity. God, draw them into a real life that would be a changing life, a transforming life, into a place that they can be confident. God, I pray for that right now and rescue in that. But then, God, I want to pray for those who are yours, and they are doing these things, that this list of seven actually does define them, and yet, for some of them, they don't let that translate into their life into confidence. They still live afraid. They still let fear control them and consume them. God, I pray for rescue, that you would give your children who are walking with you confidence. Confidence based on you, on this walk with you, on this love for you, and this reality of this life that is yours. God, a confidence that would give them confidence in your presence, confidence in prayer, and your word. God, just, I believe it. And I pray that we'd so live our lives that an abundant entrance would be supplied to us when we die. That we both with joy would enter into your presence, but it would be joy for everybody who we leave behind. That know that we know where we are. God, I pray for more of that. I pray for such lives in us and such assurance given to us. I pray for it now, for me and for all of us here. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.